Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Mark D. Usher, editor and translator of the book How to Say No, An Ancient Guide to the Art of Cynicism. Mark, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. So, uh, where to begin? Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I did not take an academic path to begin with in, in life. I was a, a, a carpenter first and um, uh, got married and had children before I even began my undergraduate um, studies. Uh, and so that definitely informs, uh, I guess, my preferences and kind of the things that I'm interested in, uh, in classics and, and elsewise. Um, and uh, so I also have a farm and uh, my wife and I raise sheep. And so we have a lot of hands-on experience as well as sort of intellectual uh, endeavors that we, uh, we pursue. Um, it, uh, it keeps us busy on both sides of, of the equation uh, and also keeps us happy. So um, part of my uh, interest in the cynics is, is based in that sort of can-do uh, praxis rather than just uh, theory or theoretical thinking. You know. I'd like for you to explore that link uh, a little bit further in, in a moment, but I was wondering if you could start us off by what was it about the cynics that led you to compile a, a book like this? Well, I I actually wrote a, a you'll you'll laugh at this, but I, I wrote a children's book about um, Diogenes uh, in which I, <laughs> I cast Diogenes literally as a dog, um, and it was illustrated by Michael Chesworth, published by Ferris, Strauss, and Giroux. Um, and it, it was sort of a, maybe a, a cult hit now, sadly out of, out of print, but, um, that got me thinking about the cynics as, um, you know, appealing to, uh, a range of ages, a range of range of types of people, um, in their sort of, uh, you know, live simply philosophy, um, and their kind of rejection of, of received values and, and cultural norms, um, and uh, so it, it actually began there. And I think what happened was, is that um, my editor at Princeton, Rob Tempio, uh, bought that book for his children. And uh, I had done another book for Princeton uh, previously uh, in the same series, How to Be a Farmer, um, which is a, an anthology of passages about farming uh, and kind of farming as a, as a approach to life um, in antiquity. And uh, this one uh, developed out of out of that one. Rob said, how about the cynics? Um, because he knew of that book. So um, it really sort of out of the mouths of babes, um, this book, this book originated. And uh, it was a lot of fun to do. It, it's a fascinating collection of passages from various works of the ancient world that discuss cynicism. But before we get into them, I was wondering if you could perhaps give us just a, a, a sort of a, a brief explanation as to what cynicism is. I mean, it's a word with which we're all familiar with today, but it's a word that we that has a very modern connotation. I was wondering if you could explain what cynicism, what the word cynicism meant to the ancients and what and what the cynic who the cynics were and and, and, and broadly what they believed. Yes, well the term cynic uh, was an insult. Um, it means uh, the word in Greek, kunikos, means dog-like and and that was kind of behind the idea of turning the, you know, casting Diogenes literally as a dog in that children's book. Um, 
you know, people uh, in antiquity, uh, Athenians, Corinthians, called the cynics dogs because they did all their, let's just say, private business in public, um, as dogs do, um, without concern for who's watching or whatever. Uh, they were sort of free spirits in that regard. And, um, and they then in turn kind of wore that insulting uh, moniker as a, as a badge of honor and, um, and kind of flouted their dog-like behavior. So they would, they would uh, take, it, take it to the extreme, let's just say, because um, they lived out of doors. They were essentially homeless people. Um, you know, they begged for their food like dogs and they, they kind of a, made it kind of a persona for themselves. Um, and uh, it, was, it was part of their shtick. Um, they were performance artists of sorts, and it's like the, the dog was their their front. So it's kind of owning an insult uh, and sort of a, an empowering thing for them. And it wasn't it wasn't by design. It, it seems it seems like you know the the, the sources suggest it, it fell into their lap, and then they they leveraged it um, to their great advantage and their uh, ultimate fame and infamy um, as it came <laughs> down to us. Uh, it, I, one of the things that, that stood out for me as I was reading it is you describe how they, they adopt the persona of the dog and that comes through in, in some of the passages that, that you, uh, that you translate and, and, and provide. But it, you, another thing that comes across is the respect and esteem that was held. I mean, sometimes we think of dog as an insult, you know, you, you running dog, how dare you and so forth. You, but as you explained it, even though they, they may have adopted the, the, the manner of the dog and, 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 and the label of the dog that you, these people were, you know, uh, oftentimes, you know, seen as, as at least in, in these passages that we have uh, as, you know, respectable members of their community, uh, honored members of their community and, and, and people who were, were greatly admired for their for their attributes. Yeah, that's a good point. I, and I think I think it's because they, they were sort of viewed as like to keep the dog uh, image going uh, as mascots. They were sort of like, you know, the uh, the resident crazy person uh, in town who would speak the truth uh, with no holds barred. Um, they would say things that other people wouldn't dare to say. And, and you know, like Socrates before them, and in many ways, they, they follow in the footsteps of, of uh, Socrates. They, uh, they attracted a following of people who love to see authority questioned and, um, and powerful people dressed down. Uh, and that's really what the cynics, you know, were up to. But they also re- received admiration um, in a way because they... Uh, you know, they put their money where their mouth is. I mean, there's a sort of a, a trope in antiquity that the philosopher is all talk and no action. Uh, and there's, you know, plenty of satires about philosophers who, you know, again, they don't live up to what they, what the, what they, they don't practice what they preach. You know, the cynics, you know, they, they did, uh, or at least, you know, uh, many of them did the ones that, that were held in the esteem that you refer to. So, people looked at them and said, wow, these guys are pretty serious. And, you know, they, they are tough. Um, they do without things that uh, I seem to need. And so uh, I think that won them uh, quite a bit of admiration as well. So that, that, that those two sides, the fact that they were, would flout authority, uh, which everyone loves, and, uh, <laughs> and, they, were, and they were, you know, uh, humorous also, and, you know, who doesn't love humor? But they, but they also... Um, were serious in their life pursuit of living simply um, and kind of dropping out of uh, polite society. And, and one of the best examples of this, of course, is Diogenes, who is associated at, with sort of the 
you know, the leading figure of, of cynicism. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk a bit about him and, and, and how, uh, and, and how he lived the life of a cynic. I mean, the passage you have, he, he does seem like a very remarkable figure who you you wouldn't think that he would have survived as long as he did, given some of the things he said and to whom he said them. And yet, as you note, he's he's quoted it as or he that we the ancient uh, works have him as living to the ripe old age of 90. Yeah. Well, uh, it, it, the origin story of Diogenes, you know, kind of discovering philosophy or let's say, converting to a new way of life that became his cynic way of life uh, is really interesting. So, I mean, whether it's how factual or how historical it actually is, you know, we'll never know. But it's a great story. And it actually it mirrors that that of Socrates. So here, here's what it is, is that uh, Socrates, I mean, um, Diogenes's father was a banker in Sinope, which is a, uh, a city-state in what is now modern Turkey near the Black Sea, Greek city-state. Um, and his father was a banker and he ran the coinage. And somehow, you know, his father and or Diogenes, uh, father and son duo, got involved in like uh, defacing the currency. In other words, like uh, shaving some off or, you know, making it worth less than it really was or, or pocketing the, the proceeds of it. We're not, we're not exactly sure, kind of mis- mysterious and murky. Um, and they were exiled from their, their hometown. Uh, some reports that his father was put into prison for it. So Diogenes was kind of like left adrift. And when, when you're adrift in the ancient world, what do you do? You go to the Oracle at Delphi and you ask the Oracle, you know, what should I do? <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what path should I take? Uh, what course of action? And uh, again, the story has it that Diogenes received uh, in response to his query for the Oracle, to the Oracle, the answer was, what should I do? Deface the currency was the answer. Parakaraksai uh, tanomisma in Greek. And tanomisma is a really interesting word. It can mean actual, like, uh, uh, Coinage. It can mean, you know, the the uh, the actual standard uh, against which uh, value is measured, but it can also mean currency, as it were, in the other sense, like cultural currency, values, uh, practices, beliefs. So Diogenes took this as sort of a, you know, he said, "Wait, I've already defaced the currency. What do you mean deface the currency? I've already done that literally, and that's why I got kicked out of Sinope." Uh, and he he took it, you know metaphorically he said aha my life's mission is to deface cultural currency and so like socrates uh, who also received a delphic oracle uh you know through a friend of his chirophon that um that he should continue doing what he's doing so he he kind of shift gears he he shifted gears and he was uh, a defacer of common currency values practices um and made that his life's mission and he kind of felt he had a you know let's just say divine sanction to do it. Um, uh, he felt empowered to, to go ahead and do this, uh, have this mission in life. So that's the story. And that's how he wound up doing what, what, uh, what he did. And that in itself made him an unusual figure. But the other fascinating part is that this spawns a whole 
I don't want to quite say school of philosophy, but a whole way of life that get that people pursue. Because your book, as as you demonstrate, is not just a collection of, of translated Greek works, mm-hmm. but it also includes some Latin works that refer to how the 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 cynic approach you know continues well into the Roman imperial era. So we're talking about a, uh, a you know a fairly durable approach that lasts for uh, six centuries at least. Absolutely. The longevity of cynicism uh, is incredible. And, and you were right uh, earlier in what you said that, you know, you didn't say not quite a school, but a way of life. The cynics really never did form a school. Uh, they did not have a set of beliefs that you had to subscribe to. They weren't they weren't really teachers in that way. And, and they weren't uh, much of uh, they weren't writers, really. I mean, there's some, you know, uh, reports of, you know, uh, parodies that they wrote of tragedies and other things like this, but they weren't like, you know, persons of letters. They weren't literary people, um, though they did influence people who were, uh, you know, literateurs. Um, and you, you see that in Horace and others as well. But so the, the cynics were, it was, definitely was a way of life and it was an international phenomenon. You know, perhaps what, you know, few, fewer people might know than, than, than should is that the cynicism had was just a hotbed of cynicism was, was in the, the the Levant, so you know Israel, Jordan, modern Israel, uh, modern Jordan, Palestine, that whole area. Um, there were there were cynics there, and um, some biblical scholars have New Testament scholars have have seen a, a strong cynic influence in the in the Gospels, uh, and in, even perhaps influencing the historical Jesus himself. Um, there were probably cynics in in every you know Hellenistic city um, at this period. And uh, and then you see it continuing later, even after kind of, you know, paganism uh, wanes and Christianity is on the ascendant. You see it in the form of um, early monasticism and sort of the the feats of endurance and um, rejection of, again, uh, cultural norms uh, amongst uh, monks and uh, other ascetics. that uh, that lasts. I mean, gosh, it's, it still hasn't gone away. We still have that form of cynicism in some ways, um, even though it's less less solitary and perhaps more communitarian. But while we're on that topic, though, I use the word ascetic, and let me just say quickly, and again, going back to what you said, what were some of the core, uh, you know, beliefs or what what is cynicism at its core? One thing they they stressed um, strongly was this notion of training. So, you know, they, they practice these sort of rigors, you know, Diogenes lived outside in a, in a pithos, which was a, a giant vase. Um, and, you know, they, they didn't have any possessions except a, a walking stick and a, a satchel that they would carry around and a, maybe a bowl that they would beg from, beg with and then eat from. Uh, so they had, they, they rejected all of that. And, um, they they did this because they they felt that they were they were training themselves um, for doing without um, the accoutrement of life. So this notion of the training that the cynics were undergoing and advocating and, and serving in, as an example of the word for that in Greek is askesis, um, which is where our word ascetic comes from. Ascetic. So they borrowed that term from uh, Greek athletics. So from sports. So they really viewed it as sort of like exercise. Like if I can get really good at doing without, um, I'm going to be stronger for it. And then I'm going to be prepared for when something, you know, when I, when I don't have a choice 
to be without when it's uh, sort of inflicted upon me. So that notion of you know preparation through training was a big part of the uh, the cynic lifestyle. It, the discipline is something that that you know for me was perhaps the biggest surprise because I, I wouldn't have thought it as being something that required discipline. And yet you demonstrate that was you know it was something that they were constantly preparing themselves for because what they were asking of themselves was so uh, significant. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think when you referring to what you said before, that's what won them so much admiration is that they 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 did achieve this and they were, were able to to do without. And, you know, that is impressive. You admire people who are able to put their money where their mouth is. I, I want to go back to something you said earlier about, about uh, you know, how there the, the, the were never a formal school. That's one of the other things that, that struck me as I was reading the book, which was how so much of what we have about the cynics, so much of so many of the passages that, that you provide are not from the cynics themselves, or at least not even represented as being from the cynics, but rather are other people of other schools of thought who are commenting upon them. And an excellent example of this was, was is the Emperor Julian, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But another example that then the one I want to turn to next is Seneca. Because as you point out uh, in, in your uh, editorial note, Seneca was not a cynic, he was a stoic. And yet, as you point out, as you mentioned, he writes about the cynics and and, and writes about it in a way that gives us a perspective on them that that uh, both you know underscores their longevity, but also gets to how they were viewed by uh, by their contemporaries over the time. Mm. So yeah, the cynics are are like well, one of the great uh, oralists. So they're some of the great oralists from antiquity. You know, Socrates himself never wrote anything. You know, we have Plato, we have Xenophon. Um, and the cynics continued in, in that tradition. They're also, you know, similar to the, the Buddha, um, where, you know, the, the, the teachings and the, the way of life was transmitted orally. Um, and of, uh, of course, they attracted attention. Um, uh, they were very public figures. So they weren't recluses like, you know, perhaps like Christian ascetics were. They were in it was very much an urban phenomenon. So they were on parade and within plain view um, all the time. So, you know, people like a, a Seneca or a Julian would have had uh, encounters with cynics. You know, Seneca counted a cynic of a contemporary of his named Demetrius, you know, a good friend. And, and from what we know of this Demetrius, who originally came from Corinth, but lived at Rome, he kind of he was kind of like a hanger on uh, in at, at parties uh, among the rich and famous. You know, it was sort of like I used the word mascot before, but he, he did move in sort of. Um, elite circles, uh, including Seneca. Seneca was one of the richest, richest men in Rome. So, um, uh, and of course, Seneca was also serious about his philosophy, and um, and and you know wanted to capture the admiration that he had uh, for Demetrius in in some of his writings. Uh, and Seneca is very pluralistic, let's just say, or Catholic in his taste when it comes to philosophy. Though he is a, a Stoic, um, you know, he he quotes Epicurus more than he quotes any other single named Stoic in his works. For instance, and Epicurus was a, you know, different, different philosophical view, different, different position. Um, so yeah, Seneca um, admired, admired cynicism as did, as you mentioned, the emperor Julian, um, who was not also not a cynic. He was a, a Neoplatonist. So yet, yet a different uh, philosopher. Perhaps for me, the most surprising passage was the one uh, with Hipparchia of Morenia. I think, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Hipparchia of Maronia, yeah. yes. Yeah. 
in in that you you feature a, a figure that you we don't oftentimes you know we're, we're not as familiar with, which is in, in in so much of ancient literature, which is the the woman who is associated with you know a, a particular movement or or or, or an idea, and, and it's the kind of, and it's especially interesting because you get a sense as to how a how a, a a woman who is a cynic would live that life given the different demands that her society placed upon her. I was trying to think could perhaps la- elaborate a bit upon what it was that, that, that she was called upon to do as, as a cynic who, who was a woman. Yeah, that's, it's, it's a, it's a charming story. We, we only have like little glimpses of it, uh, you know, in the ancient sources about, uh, how she came to be a cynic, but what we have is very charming and and uh, really quite beautiful. It's a love story. So she was a a a, a hearer of Crates, um, and and um, she and who was a cynic, and so she was like interested in 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 cynicism, uh, and she was also interested in in him. She was a, a from a wealthy family, and and Crates had already been you know living the cynic lifestyle, probably older than she was. And, um, she was attracted to the whole thing. Um, and, um, and she kept coming to his lectures and kept, kept living in lectures, his, his sessions, whatever you want to call them and, and would hang around with him. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually they, they, they fell in love and they decided to, decided to make a partnership of it. And, um, you know, uh, she seemed to, I mean, as the sources convey it. She seemed to be the persistent one. And, and, you know, he said, look, you know, what you're getting with me, you know, Crates, uh, the sources also tell us was sort of a hunchback. He was kind of ugly. Um, so he, he shows up at her doorstep and says, if you want to marry me, this is what you get. So he, he drops his drawers, you know, you know, stark naked, um, and says, <laughs> you know, this is it. Is this what you want? And, and you know, the lifestyle that I live, this is the life that you'll be joining if you, if you marry me. And she said, yes. <laughs> so that was his proposal. And, um, and, you know, as this little charming, uh, fictional letter, I must say that I include in the volume, uh, about, um, them having their first child and Crates writing to Hipparchia and saying how she should take care of him and treat him like a little dog, you know, a little cynic and, you know, make sure he has enough to eat, but don't give him too much. And, you know, make sure his bath is not too warm, you know, has to be just right. You know, don't want to get him, you know, too, uh, with a taste for luxury too early. Um, but it, the whole thing represents sort of the domestication of, of, of cynicism in some ways, or at least as it was uh, looked back upon. Um, but Crates and Hipparchia themselves probably, you know, lived on the streets. And there are some anecdotes that, you know, when they would engage in their, conjugal duties as husband and wife do. Um, they did so as dogs would out in, out in the open and in public. And it, uh, certainly, uh, represented quite an attraction to passersby. <laughs> Something of a show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, I, I think it's, so- if I could say something about that, the whole point of that was not just sort of exhibitionism. Um, you know, the cynics were also, again, going to back to what did they stand for? They were, they were big into training and to get practice at doing without, but they were also big into, um, showing, you know, how, how it's better to live according to nature, how, how empty some of the cultural forms that we think are normal and necessary, uh, are. 
And so they would go to the opposite extreme and and live, you know, like an animal um, on purpose um, to to show that you can be perfectly happy without these sort of fetters of of civilization and um, and social propriety and, and, and forms that they interfere with what they felt was true virtue, which uh, has to do with, you know, uh, attitudes and, and, and deep behaviors um, and, you know, what later we call it justice or something. So, um, uh, yeah, it wasn't just exhibitionism. It was sort of like they were making a point again, uh, as like a performance artist would do. They would, they would, they would be more so on purpose to draw attention to um, something else. And that actually gets to one of the things that most fascinated me about the cynics when I was reading this, which was that they they are, you know, living this life, but it's not a life that's being lived in isolation. And this gets to how you described how the cynics, uh, you know, had an influence on early Christianity. You could, you know, argue that that that's represented perhaps uh, to a degree in the uh, hermits and, and, and the aesthetic withdrawal that that many people practice with early Christianity. But these are not you know, men and women who are detaching themselves from society, they're very much a part of their society. And I think you particularly hear of, of the next two passages that you, uh, where you uh, talk about uh, Demetrius the Cynic and, uh, and is it Demonax or, or Demonax? Demonax, yeah, exactly. Demon. Demonax and, and how they were, you know, they, they were teachers, they they were, uh, you know, they, they were members of their community. They didn't just go off and, and, and you know, run into the hills and, and, you know, live their life there, that they did so amidst civilization, but they were basically, you know, kind of distilling it down to the things that they needed to do in order to, uh, in order to live. Right. I mean, one of the, one of the things that the cynics valued, um, uh, in addition to the, you know, the training and, uh, and living according to nature, um, uh, was this, um, let's, let's call it speak truth to power. They believed in, in free speech, um, uh, and they, they practiced it and, you know, free speech doesn't mean, well, it means something different than what it meant, than what it means today. But what, what the, the Greek word is parousia, which is, um, again, saying something, saying what you're thinking and saying, uh, what you believe is true with no holds barred. So, you know, it's hard to speak truth to power if you're not like uh, in the halls of power. Right. And so they mm-hmm. were sort of squatters in the halls of power uh, living, you know, in the Mediterranean world, people live out of doors and everything is taking place kind of out of doors or, you know, it's a porous sort of walls or porous in the, in the porticos and whatever of uh, Athens and, and, and the forms of Rome. So uh, they were, you know, out and about and uh, living this public life because it provided that opportunity to to to, uh, you know, speak out, you know, um, their voice wouldn't be heard. They weren't writers. You know, they were literally when I say that they were speakers. So um, it was important to be there um, in situ where all the bad things were were going, were, you know, going down <laughs> um, that they could comment on. And the commentary is another thing that that is a is a thread that runs through these. And there, it is interesting to see how they're received. And this is something that I think the fact that they're 
we're getting these from from you know ostensible third parties is is itself an advantage because it's not just them exp- you know, you know, living their life and 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 in explaining their life, it's it's also the how this was received, and, and this gets to the passage that you have about uh, Diogenes and the Ismithian Games, because I, I was thinking I, on the one hand, you know, somebody goes around like Diogenes, who's basically very uh, disrespectful to the, these games, which which people have shown up to attend. You would think they'd be offended by this, you know. This the, you think about the, the kind of person who would show up, say, for example, at a, at a at a at a at a modern sporting match and sit around sneering at how you know idiotic it all is in the field, and and, and a lot of fans would turn against them. But as you have, as you note in that passage, people were actually amused by it, it and, and and that's where I, I was struck by how. You know, so it was in so many of the passages that it wasn't just that they were sitting around saying, you know, denouncing people and, and being scolds about about these, you know, the idiocies of civilization. They do so in a way that is commentary and, 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 and the humorous tone really does seem to make the difference. Totally. I mean, they were they were the trash talkers of antiquity. You know, <laughs> I mean, you mentioned uh, I think you're alluding to the the, the best in show uh, passage yes. that I call best in show, which, of course, is you know, allusion to the dog show. Um but uh, um, Diogenes attending the uh, the uh, the um, uh, festival at uh, uh, of, of games and, and competitions and at a very public you know celebratory event and and basically trash talking like confronting the athletes confronting the the, the, the politicos that are there to be seen and we think they're running things and um, you know it's something like Spike Lee you know on the sidelines of a Knicks game or something or Jack Nicholson at a Lakers game you know where they're in the face of the uh, the opponents and uh, trying to provoke uh, on purpose and see if they can get a get a reaction and um, and again it was they felt it was their mission you know I mean you know Diogenes is on his Delphic uh, mandate to, to go to go do this um, uh, to face the currency Mm-hmm. And, and another thing that that you do in the book, and and this for me was, was the you know it, it, the interesting one because occasionally you hear and you very talked a bit about the uh, the 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 uh, inspiration that the the cynics may have provided, the influence that they may have had, but you also had this interesting passage from Strabo, where you uh, in in his geography where you have this encounter between uh, a cynic. Uh, Onastricus is how you pronounce his name. Onastricus, yeah. Onastricus, yeah. excuse me. And 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 how uh, how uh, he, he's he's a member of, of Alexander the Great's fleet, and he has this encounter with the with these with this group of of, of Indian aesthetics, uh, the 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 gymnosophists, yeah. and and and, and wh- I thought it was interesting in the sense that that how we can read that today as an example of the degree to which cynicism compares with the more aesthetic philosophies of the East, which is not a, a point of comparison that you probably had too many opportunities for in the ancient world. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, Alexander's conquests um, uh, and his campaigns uh, in the East that brought him all the way to, you know, the Indus, Indus and the Ganges uh, river valleys. Um, and, and he brought a whole entourage of, of not only soldiers, but like, you know, plant hunters and uh, philosophers and, and soldiers of fortune looking for, uh, you know, exchange of ideas and other things uh, that came along with him. Onesicritus was one of these kind of characters. He he was an admiral, I guess, in, in Alexander's uh, fleet. Um, but others uh, 
came with uh, the whole army that went with Alexander to the east and um, uh, bent on seeing basically, you know, discovering what the philosophy was like there. And so you've got this, uh, you know, this encounter between Onesicritus and these ascetics who were probably shramanas. They were, you know, the wandering forest dwelling uh, ascetics that, uh, you know, the, the Buddha himself was once before he discovered uh, the middle way uh, became Buddhism. Uh, maybe they, it's possible they may have been Buddhists themselves too. Um, another philosopher who invented skepticism, a Greek philosopher who invented skepticism, um, also went east with Alexander and, you know, clearly had encounters with uh, uh, ascetics and philosophers who were, who held beliefs that are very, you know, pretty similar to Buddhism, uh, early classical Buddhism, um, and brought that back as skepticism later. So there were these sort of cultural interactions and um, uh, Onesicritus, I think that passage actually is, is interesting how Strabo presents it, that it's almost as if that the, the Indian ascetics are better, better cynics than the cynic. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, they're, they're showing them up. Uh, that could be in part because Onesicritus was, didn't have a great reputation in antiquity. He was, he was thought to be kind of a, a tale teller and self-aggrandizer for all his cynicism. Um, but um uh, it's, I find that really a fascinating, a fascinating uh, encounter. And they're probably, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There were probably many encounters like that, that just never made the sort of headlines in Strabo, as it were, you know, uh, that, you know, ordinary people living in towns and cities that were in these sorts of areas on the, on the cusp of two cultures or already, you know, multicultural would have had encounters like this. And, and clearly that's the way ideas are transmitted um, uh, informally, um, you know, um, by that sort of, you know, living side by side. So this, this is sort of a heightened version of that, that, that as Strabo describes it, you know, a big interview that takes place with the gymnosophists and Onesicritus sent by Alexander himself. But I think in a, in a, in a nutshell or in a microcosm, you would, that was happening all the time. Uh, in this very fervent period of, um, of uh, you know, uh, interculturation uh, in the Hellenistic period. And, and that, uh, and it's, it, it's, and those points that appear in the literature are, are, are very uh, valuable for, for me, at least, because they, they help me to better understand the ideas because there is, albeit an artificial contrast that is set up. And another place where you see this is in the passage where you have interview with a cynic, mm. which is a, a dialogue that you present, which elaborates upon some ideas. And as you note, some of the ideas that, that the cynics express are re- remarkably relevant and, and current today. I, yeah, that, that, that was a really, uh, I enjoyed, uh, you know, uh, actually reading that carefully, which you have to do when you, when you translate something that, uh, that passage, it, it I mean, that, uh, that dialogue, it's uh, attributed to Lucian of Samosata. Uh, he was a satirist and, and he also, you know, wrote uh, the life of Demonax, who was his, his teacher. Um, uh, and so he, he definitely had, you know, whether he was a card carrying cynic, can you be, I don't know, but he was certainly influenced <laughs> by cynicism. But anyway, because that, that, that dialogue treats of cynicism, it, it somehow circulated under his name, uh, in, in, in his, in books that came down to us, but it probably is not by him, but it doesn't matter. The, the, the interview is, is interesting because, you know, the cynic expresses all sorts of 
ideas that, that, that seem so to me, you know, well, resonant uh, to the modern age. So, you know, he decries globalism, globalism, you know, Roman Empire style, where, you know, uh, people to to get goods and services and uh, usually luxury goods, um, they send ships afar and all the people who have to kind of suffer and die in the process of, you know, uh, fitting out a table with the instruments for a, a fine meal, Um Preferring instead, the cynic says, you know, local, um, locally sourced products that uh, aren't so costly in every sort of way, you know, costly of human lives. I mean, in some ways, he's anticipating the whole notion of externalities, um, the economics uh, idea uh, in, in that. So, you know, that's a that's just a really interesting, um, interesting notion. They, they also kind of are are anti growth. You know, they're sort of. You know, I, I don't know if I call them that in the book, but I think of them as sort of like the gurus of degrowth, the cynics, you know, um, a small example of just that um, is like Diogenes. You know, they always strove to the cynics always strove to kind of do do with even less than that they were doing with already. So Diogenes had a bowl that he would beg with and he would drink from and eat his food from. And then he saw a poor child, you know, eating his lentils out of a out of a, um, a a hollowed out piece of bread and he saw another child again it's instructive that it's a child that teaches them these things and he sees another child drink water not using a cup but using his hands and so he says oh my gosh i've been i've been you know bested in simplicity by a child <laughs> and he, he, throws his, he, th- he throws his bowl away you know so now he's just left with a stick and a knapsack or a, you know, a walking stick and a knapsack so um, anyway, that um, all those ideas are, are, are still with us in a, in a different way, of course. But um, uh, this quest for simplicity, minimalism and uh, uh, an awareness of uh, the costs of uh, growth and the costs of of uh, acquisition, um, somebody <laughs> suffers for it. That, that that sense of inheritance uh, comes across very well in, in, in the final uh, passage you excerpt, which looks at two Christians, uh, uh, Simon the Holy Fool and and and, and Simon Stylites, and and how you know the they're not cynics in in, in the sense of you know they, they don't they're not practicing things they're, they're very they're very true to their Christian faith they're they're very important uh, early Christians yet nonetheless you identify in them or and show how contemporary how a contemporary identify with them aspects of the of the cynic uh, way of life. Yes, I mean, so the you know the influence there is is not direct. It's sort of like a you know a, a residue of cynicism that 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 persists, or let's call it like you know maybe the cynicism sort of rediscovered or, or transformed you know with the with the discourse of Christianity. But essentially, the, the Simeon Stylites, he's got his 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 surname there, Stylites. He was named uh, called that because he lived on top of a pillar. Uh, in in uh, outside of Edessa, and um, and you know the whole notion there was to show how pious he was, or to sh- you know to, to show his devotion to God by by uh, austerities of that sort, and and the idea was that those austerities and the and the strength that you would get from denying your bodily needs and yourself would would you know tra- transmute into sort of some sort of spiritual mojo that you could then transmit to others for you know the 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 betterment of your 
community or the people who would come to see you for miracles or favors or whatever it was, uh, or advice even. So, um, you know, Simeon, and in, in, in that, in a very public thing, you know, he was doing this out, you know, uh, in public view and people would come to consult him. Um, so in that way, he, he, he does stand in that tradition of, of cynicism as being sort of a, again, kind of like an, a, a living oracle for, um, uh, you know, uh, wisdom, um, uh, wisdom that is not quote unquote of this world. Um, whether that be in a Christian sense or as the cynic said, you know, they, they were world deniers too, um, in terms of the cultural conventions of their days. So yeah, definitely. Um, and you know, where did, how did that, how did Simeon get that? Um, you know, I think it kind of, it, it, it's kind of there latent in early Christianity, even in new Testament Christianity, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, leave your father and mother, your wife, your brother and sister and come follow me. Right. Um, uh, a, a fox has a hole, birds of the air have their nest, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. You know, this idea of outdoor living, moving from town to town, you know, s- preaching the message, whatever that message was, you know, this was part of early Christianity, too. And and it, it had been the cynics had been doing that before that, before that time. So very interesting confluence of, of, you know, almost unknown, maybe unspoken influences. And it's fascinating how those influences are there and they've, you know, come down to the present day. And yet, you know, I, I think of those influences and I just do not associate the word cynicism with them because it's just fascinating how, how the, the ideas have survived, the term has survived, but they seem divorced from one another in the modern sense. We don't think of a person living the simple aesthetic life as being cynical. Right. We, we think of cynical as being the person who is, you know, sneers at that and, and, and doesn't respect it. It's just, I, I'm just fascinated by, by that divergence and how it misrepresents what cynicism was in, in, in the classical sense. Yeah, that, great point. That, that's so true. It's like, you know, uh, modern cynicism or the idea of cynicism today is, is, is you use the word sneering. It is yeah. sneering. It's kind of looking down your nose at things, uh, all criticism, uh, but no productive criticism, you know, uh, and the, the cynics I mean, and maybe pessimism, maybe modern cynicism is, is pessimistic in many ways, you know, thinks the worst of everything at all times. You know, the cynics, even though they were they would speak the truth to power and they would call things, you know, describe things as they really are. They were optimists because they they really thought that there there was room for self-improvement by mm, denying the self, uh, by uh, training this notion of ascesis. So, um, yeah, isn't it funny how it's come full circle? I mean, the the early cynics, I think, were optimists about about what. what is possible if you set if you set your whole your whole being your whole person your whole personality to it to attain virtue um uh yeah well we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us but before we go could you tell us what you're working on now Yes, well, um, I've I've uh, finished uh, another book for the same series in Princeton uh, 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 at Princeton called um, How to Care About Animals. Uh, and so this is an anthology of um, uh, passages about human interaction and, you know, thinking about uh, about animals. Uh, it contains everything from uh, Porphyry's wonderful, powerful, actually, essay um, about uh, advocating vegetarianism and not killing animals 
to uh, you know Pliny's descriptions of you know mistreatment of element elephants uh, in the arena, um, to uh, other stories, uh, you know, uh, zoological, you know, descriptions of, of animals as the ancients encountered them. So, um, I'm, that's, that's done. Um, and that'll probably appear this time next year. Um, a lot of fun to do. And that kind of comes from my own interest in, in raising animals, uh, here on the farm, sheep, cows, we have donkeys too. Um, and then I'm, I'm also working on a book, uh, also for Princeton and, um, called Following Nature's Lead. And this actually is a little spinoff of, of cynicism. So Following Nature's Lead, the subtitle is Ancient Ways of Living in a Dying World. But that phrase, the, the lead phrase on the, in the title, Following Nature's Lead, is a sort of a gloss uh, in English on the Latin phrase secundum naturam, which means according to nature or following nature. And uh, the premise of the book is that ancient philosophy of all stripes, whether it be cynicism, Platonism, even Aristotelianism, um, Stoicism for sure, Epicureanism also, um, had this as a as a premise that that we should look to nature for our cue on how to make decisions, uh, how to interact, uh, how to form our ethics, how to form policies, um, and uh, essentially the book thinks about, uh, tries to think about how that, what, what that might mean in the 21st century. What does it mean in an age of science to follow nature's lead? Um, how can we let an under, a scientific understanding of the world inform our ethical choices and our policy decisions? Um, uh, and again, seeing philosophy not as a set of veridical propositions, but as a way of life, as you actually mentioned at the very beginning of the interview here, um, trying to recover that. So anyway, that that book is uh, in the works as well. Well, those both sound like fascinating projects. I, I hope uh, we have a chance to have you back to discuss them. It would be a pleasure. Uh, Mark, uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Mark. 